Hello, this is Gary Hutchins with the Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. We podcast a Bible study every Wednesday night for those who want to be in God's Word, but they obviously cannot be with us at the Sunny Slope Church of Christ. Now, we know that there are even some people in Omaha, and that's where we're located, Sunny Slope Church of Christ in Omaha, Nebraska. We know that even there, here, some people cannot be with us in person when, the, uh, when we have Wednesday night Bible class because of health problems, work, rela- uh, work schedules, and so on. But they want to be in God's Word. And we know that there are people across the country and literally around the world. They want to learn God's Word, but because of where they live, they cannot be with us in person either. So we're thankful to have the opportunity and the ability and the means to be able to teach God's Word on such a widespread basis through the medium of the internet and by means of these podcasts. We're thankful that you're there. We're thankful that you want to learn more from God's Word. And that's important for your faith because we keep emphasizing faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. So we're thankful to be here with you today. We want to encourage you to tell everybody you can about these Bible classes and all of our podcasting. In fact, encourage them to go to our website at churchofchrist.com, churchofchrist.com, click on the podcast button and sign up for our podcasting. Now, it's free. It always will be free. We just want to help people learn God's word more thoroughly and get to heaven. We don't, we're not after people's wallets. When somebody signs up for our podcasting, they will automatically receive our Wednesday night Bible class, our Sunday morning Bible class, all of our sermons, and a Monday through Friday daily radio program we call Search the Scriptures, but also a seven-day-a-week short Bible class every single day of the week, only about 13 to 14 minutes long usually, but it keeps us in God's Word, and that, again, helps us to grow in our faith and stay strong in our faith. It also helps keep us focused on our relationship with God and to have a better mindset, a more spiritually focused mindset to be able to deal with all that life throws at us every day. Now, we call that today's Bible class. So tell everybody you can. Take advantage of it yourself. And by the way, share these studies with everybody you can through Facebook friends, text messages, and other technological means. You may help somebody get into the Bible themselves, grow in their faith, maybe get to heaven. What a great blessing for them and for you. Now, we're going to get back into our study from the gospel account according to John, and we are in chapter 11. Now, when we finished off last time, I I said we're going to stop before we came to the end of the chapter. This is a rather long chapter, 57 verses altogether. We studied through the first 44. Now, you might wonder, okay, well, why did we not go ahead and finish? Well, certainly, every chapter in God's Word is an important chapter. But there was a shift in focus when we finished with verse 44 versus what begins in verse 45. Now, what are we talking about in chapter 40, in chapter 11 of John's gospel account? We're talking about the raising from the dead of Lazarus by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's in his public ministry. Here is a man who has died, and Jesus 
the text would seem to indicate, had a very special and personal relationship with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, when we begin chapter 11, we notice that that Jesus already knows about Lazarus, Lazarus's illness. Now, we, we find in the first few verses, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Well, in the town of, of Mary and, his, and her sister Martha, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he, who, he whom you love is sick. Now, here, again, this brings out the personal relationship, the extra, I think the extra deep relationship, perhaps, we can understand that Jesus has with this family, so to speak, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, this is not the first time we see him there in that household. Uh, we've seen that earlier when he was there teaching and, and uh, Mary and Martha were listening to a point and then Martha got up and she started preparing a meal. She was upset because her sister was not helping her. She was sitting there listening to Jesus and, and she, she challenged Jesus. She said, you know, tell her to get up and help me. And he said, no, no. He said, Martha, Martha, you are troubled. You are cumbered <laughs> with many things. Mary is, is taking care of the most important thing. She's listening to the teaching that I'm giving. And that's not going to be taken away from her. Well, that was a correction on Jesus's part to, Mar- to Martha. And Martha, I think she understood. And probably, undoubtedly, she learned from that. But here we find the, this, these two sisters and her, their brother farther down the line, so to speak. And so Lazarus is sick. So the sisters send to Jesus and telling him, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it wasn't an idea that he had this special love for Lazarus, the brother, but not necessarily so much for Mary and Martha, Lazarus's two sisters. No, he, he loved all three of these siblings. They had, again, a, a close personal relationship, special relationship. What, now, to whom is Jesus speaking when he says, this sickness is not unto death? I, I think undoubtedly it's to the apostles. After uh, when he heard this, uh, when he heard that he was sick, verse six, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and are you going there again? And so they, they understood this would be a potentially dangerous place for Jesus to go because they, they said, the Jews, they're, they're looking to stone you. They want to execute you. They want to kill you. They want to shut you up by doing away with you, basically. And Jesus goes on in verse 9, and he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, these things he said, and after that, he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Now, here's this word sleep that's used different times in Scripture to indicate death. And the apostles did not really understand what Jesus meant here, the fullness of it. And so Jesus, in verse 14, clarified, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. Now, he knew about his illness the sisters had sent to him. I suspect that he already knew about that before he ever received word because, again, he is God the Son. But um, once they send to him, he waits. He waits until Lazarus dies physically. And notice again, back in verse 4, he says, this sickness is not unto death. Now, Lazarus does die physically, but he's not going to stay dead physically. But Jesus says, this is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is seeing something that we have a difficult time seeing in our physic, from our physical frame of mind. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And through this miracle, literal miracle, then that was going to demonstrate in a very powerful way that he truly is whom he said he, he is. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah prophesied in Old Testament scriptures come to earth. He is God the Son. Now, he has already identified himself as such numerous times to this point, but he has those who have believed in him, and then he has those who have absolutely disbelieved, and even those who have become bitter enemies of his. And this is the transition we see where we're going to pick up in verse 45. But first, he goes, after Lazarus has died, he goes. And Mary and Martha both talk to him. I mean, obviously, they're glad to see him. And both of them, they indicate their, their deep and abiding faith in him. And even to the point of, of pronouncing that if you were here, he would not have died. And so Jesus, but he knows what he's going to do. And so um, in verse 32, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping. He groaned. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And again, he has this deep care for these two sisters and their brother. In verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then again, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept, verse 45, uh, verse 35. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. The, the, the love that Jesus had for Lazarus was obvious in the way he was responding to this reality, to this news that Lazarus had died, and also how it had stricken Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so see how he loved him, verse 36. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And so here are some of these who had come to console Mary and Martha and mourn the loss of their brother with them. Some of them had become at least to some degree believers in Jesus because of the miracles. And so Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, so it was sealed. 
And then Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. In other words, he stinks because by this time his body will have started to decay, will have started to go through the decaying process because he's dead. He's been dead four days, she tells him. And then Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took the stone away from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. He speaks to the Father in, 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 by way of reference in the past tense. I, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, he has not yet called forth Lazarus from this tomb, but he speaks as though it had already taken place, that Lazarus had already risen by God's power through Jesus. And so he, he acknowledges, I say this for the people who are around me at this time, so they can hear and they can see then and they can believe. Their faith can became, become stronger. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, verse 30, 43, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died, in other words, Lazarus, came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. He had been buried according to the burial custom of the day in that part of the world for the Jews, and he comes out still covered, wrapped in his burial clothes. And so Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Lazarus is risen. Jesus called him forth. Now, what would be the natural response of everybody? Well, certainly Mary and Martha must have just rejoiced virtually beyond words to see their brother who had been dead for four days now come forth risen. And the people who had come to mourn with them and, and console them and, and comfort them in their grief, surely they must have rejoiced also mightily. But they were not the only ones who exhibited a reaction. There were those there who exhibited exactly the opposite reaction. So I want us to pick up in earnest today with verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now let's focus first upon verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. You know, it's one thing for somebody to come along and say, I am so-and-so. Anybody could have come along and used the name Jesus, which literally means Savior. That person or anybody claiming that particular identity could say, I am the Messiah 
prophesied in Old Testament scripture, come forth into this world. I am the fulfillment of those prophecies. I am your savior. Anybody could claim that. Now, Jesus taught, however, with authority, with authority. But somebody could claim to be teaching the scriptures in in an authoritative way. There are a whole lot of false teachers out there today who do that. They may stand with Bible in hand, and they may teach supposedly what's what, what's in, in the scriptures, but they twist it around to suit themselves, to fit their own beliefs, and a lot of times they teach simply false doctrine. But they stand in a position that appears to be authoritative. Well, anybody can do that. But what do you do with people who they say, well, yeah, I see you are fulfilling all of these prophecies specifically and in detail. Now, that's impressive. You're teaching as though you really know what the scriptures teach, and that's impressive. But I want more proof. Well, the more proof was the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed. Now, he, he fulfilled all of those prophecies of the coming Savior in detail to the infinite degree. But again, there would still be some who would say, well, yeah, I'm still not sure. I'd like more proof. I'd like more evidence that you really are whom you say you are. And so Jesus performed the miracles, the signs, the wonders, And certainly raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been deceased for four days was a powerful and mighty miracle that evidenced that Jesus truly is whom he said he is. When we go back to chapter 2, John chapter 2 and verse 23, we see this particular form of evidence being exhibited and having its effect on some people. Verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now, you might remember, if you fast forward to Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter Eight. And Philip, now this is after the church has been established, Philip was a Christian man, and he had some miraculous gifts from, of the Holy Spirit. And, and so Philip went to the city of Samaria, and he began teaching the gospel, and many believed on him. Now there was a man there a Jewish man who was a, or I shouldn't say necessarily a Jewish man, but he, he was there of Samaria. He had, he, he, he was a sorcerer. So by trickery, he hoodwinked a lot of the people in that city into believing him and thinking he was something great. But when Philip came and not only teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which converted a whole lot of people, but also performing miracles that God through the Holy Spirit empowered him to perform in the midst of all that people. 
that convinced more even, I'm sure, to become a Christian. And even this sorcerer named Simon, he saw the real deal, so to speak. Now, he, through deceit and trickery, had hoodwinked a lot of the people into thinking he could perform signs and miracles and so on. But he recognized himself that it was all fraud. But when he saw Philip performing genuine miracles, he himself became converted to Christ and became a Christian. Now, Jesus performed these miracles, these signs, these wonders, and that really helped a whole lot of people who might have been sort of on the fence into coming full-fledged over to believe in him as being the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. We look at another text of Scripture in John's Gospel account, and that is in chapter 10, verses 37 and verses 37 and, and 38. And so we turn back there. And here again, if Jesus just use, he just puts forth the logic. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, Jesus used this logic. He said, now, I've come to show you. I've come to teach you. I've come to declare my identity as your Savior, as the Messiah come to earth. I have, have demonstrated the fulfillment of numerous of those Old Testament prophecies. But if you still don't believe me, then use your head, open your eyes, and believe the works that I have done the works that I am doing, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, they prove that I am whom I say I am. And let's, let's look at another one here. <clears throat> and I want us to look at chapter 12 and verses 10 and 11. The chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. How was it that because of Lazarus, many of the Jews believed in Jesus? It wasn't Lazarus. It was Jesus in raising Lazarus from the dead that convinced many of those Jews to become his followers. But now what was the response of the, of, of, of the chief priests? They wanted to kill Lazarus. Now they already wanted to kill Jesus, to shut him up, to stop his effect, supposedly, of, of leading Jewish people to become followers of Jesus and ultimately, ultimately to become Christians. But now, because Lazarus was a genuine, a genuine, living, walking, breathing, talking evidence of the power of Jesus, the truthfulness of Jesus being the Savior of mankind, God the Son, well, they wanted to, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Now, you talk about warped, warped and evil 
reasoning on the part of people who were claiming to be believers in and followers of God, that would be it. That would be it. So we come back to verse 45 in John chapter 11. So after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, having been dead for four days already, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. And then verse 46, the other side of the ledger. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Now they admitted that he worked many signs, and yet they didn't believe him. They saw the signs. They heard about the signs, the miracles, the wonders that he performed. They still did not believe him. They closed their mind. They would not believe him. They made up their mind not to believe him. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take, our, take away both our place and nation. Oh, okay, so here it starts to come out. Why, why were the chief priests, why was the high priest, why was the Sanhedrin council for the most part absolutely opposed to Jesus, would not believe in him, were upset because so many Jews were becoming his followers, believing in him as the Savior? come to earth? A big reason was so many of them were concerned that they'd lose their position of prestige and leadership within, it, within the nation of Israel. Listen again. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, now the Roman army occupied Israel, including Jerusalem, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Oh, my. Political positions. We can understand. Positions of leadership, positions of authority, positions of esteem among the people of Israel. Oh, we're gonna, the Romans will come and they'll just take away our place and our nation. We'll lose our position. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now, if, if that was all he said, we might stop and think, we might even clap our hands and say, ah, yay for Caiaphas, the high priest, he's going to straighten them out. But he is just as determined to not follow Jesus and to try to stop Jesus by having him killed as any of the rest of them. So he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is, that it is expedient. Now notice this. Here's the high priest, the highest position of spiritual leadership within the nation of Israel. And he says, 
you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He says it's expedient for us. Now, let's break it down into basic language. It's expedient for us to kill Jesus, to execute him, to put him to death, to do whatever we can to make him dead so that the nation should not perish. The high priest was supposed to be looking for the Savior to come. He was supposed to have known those Old Testament prophecies. He should have been ready. He should have been been receptive and rejoicing at the coming of Jesus. But he's more focused on a, let's you know say, now it's supposed to be purely a spiritual position of leadership, but it's become political in his mind. How in the world could he ever look for the Savior to come with that mindset? And so he's telling the rest of the folks there, it's expedient that we make him dead. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Hmm. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, it's interesting that John is analyzing what Caiaphas was promoting, the death of Jesus. And John was analyzing in a deeper fashion, far deeper than those chief priests then the Sanhedrin council, then the high priest were thinking. John, writing this years later, after the fact, he said, that high priest, he didn't know it, but he was actually prophesying that Jesus was going to die, not in the kind of clandestine way or assassination way if they could arrange it just to shut his mouth that Caiaphas and those enemies of Jesus were were promoting. No, they were going to get him killed, all right. They were going to put the pressure on the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to have him executed, crucified on the cross. The Roman soldiers would do the deed as the executioners, but it would be by the instigation of the high priest and the Sanhedrin council and and chief priests and so on. But this would not suit their purpose. It would not bring about what they were seeking, and that was to shut Jesus up, to quell this movement that he had begun by teaching the gospel message of salvation through him. Yes, Jesus was going to die, and it was going to be by their instigation, but God was going to use that death on the cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for the guilt of the sins, not just of Israel, but of all people of all time, without even realizing it, because he was speaking out of 
a negative perspective, a negative mindset, Caiaphas was actually prophesying, John says, that Jesus was indeed going to die for the nation, but not in the way that Caiaphas was thinking. But it would not be just for the nation of Israel, but it would be for all the world. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Again, whenever you have to resort in your mind, you have to resort to ungodliness, to wickedness, to murder, to supposedly serve the cause of God, you need to drop down on your knees and pray for a a new mindset. Pray for God's guidance and wisdom. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command, and if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. And so they issue this command among the people. If you see Jesus, you report it. So we'll take him into custody. We see that in some countries by governments of those countries today about people who they consider to be their enemies who might simply be trying to preach peace or righteousness. Unfortunately, there are some countries wherein someone openly preaching the gospel of Christ could be seized and taken into custody, arrested, and maybe even put to death. Again, when you have to resort to that kind of ungodliness, that kind of wickedness, that kind of violence, murder, basically, to supposedly serve God? Your head's not on straight, and you need to pray to God for wisdom. And whatever you've been reading by way of interpretation, you need to look again. And if it says that, you need to throw that book away. God's word is the way of righteousness. We'll pick up with chapter 12 next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your guidance that you give us through your word. Thank you so much, Father. And we pray that you'll guide us and help us to live by your teachings faithfully and obediently and consistently and to your glory, Father. Please forgive us and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.